Well, good morning, church family. Man, it's good to see you all here. It was just sweet to, uh, I mean, this morning was not looking real promising, now was it? We were glimpsing out the window wondering, are we going to in fact have a window of time here? And I think God has really smiled on us and just given us this opportunity to to have hopefully a little bit of dry weather and some cool weather. I want to thank you for coming. So I would say welcome to our first installment of Church in the Park. We may never do it again, we don't know, but uh, we're going to give it a go today. Uh, It seems like every time we have an outdoor event, we have a little bit of weather drama. We've had our, uh, what, 10 or 15 below Christmas Eve outdoor service, the Easter blizzard of 21, and now, uh, I don't know what you want to call this, the smoke out of 22, maybe that's not the best phrase for a church, I don't know. The title of my short message this morning is The Paradox of Christianity. The Paradox of Christianity. And in case you don't know what a paradox is, or maybe you've forgotten, uh, a paradox is something which at first glance, it looks like a contradiction. But after a little bit of uh, investigation, we find that it isn't. For example, science tells us that light exists both in a wave and as a particle or in particles. And that seems contradictory, but it's true. Or we hear it in some common phrases like the beginning of the end, or less is more, or save money by spending money. My oldest uh, son, Aiden, was a little boy. He would wake up from naps in the middle of wintertime and, and frequently ask us the question, is it dark day or dark night? And, uh, you know, someone from the lower 48 would hear that and think, well, that's logical and absurd. Your kid's got issues, Eric. You're going to need to hire somebody and see about that. But, of course, we know it's accurate. Well, that's what a paradox is. And Jesus, being the masterful teacher that he was, uses the intrigue of paradox to teach a spiritual lesson to his audience. In Matthew 16, he says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Uh, But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so today we're just going to take a look at this seemingly paradoxical teaching of Jesus. So I want you to, I want to ask you a question. I want you to just kind of imagine with me. If we were to ask, who is it that has the good life? Who in our world is really well off? And how would we know it? Now, this is actually a question of philosophy, and it's one of the primary questions that philosophers try to deal with. And in actuality, every person is actively living out their answer to that question even if they can't articulate it. You can see it by their life. You can see it by their values. You can see it by what they do. Every person is actively answering the question whether they've thought deeply about it or not. But if you were to press somebody for an answer in our present culture, uh, who is it that really has the good life? I think we would hear three common answers spoken. Number one, whoever's wealthy what money makes the world go round, right? Or two, whoever has sexual liberty. Or three, whoever has power and influence and fame. Most of our culture would reply with 
uh, to that question, who has the good life, with some combination of those three answers. Even Charles Schultz, the, the beloved cartoon Peanuts, uh, uh, captured sort of this dynamic when Charlie Brown asks Lucy what she really wants for Christmas. And Lucy replies, real estate. And actually, I think even the answers that we've just come up with here uh, are really not the ultimate thing that the world wants. It's more or less a means to an end. It's the way by which they get what they really want. And I think what the world really wants is freedom. Freedom to be an autonomous self, a sovereign self, so to speak. To be with whomever I want, whenever I want. To buy whatever my heart desires. To behave however I want because of my power and station in life. Autonomy and the sovereign self. Those seem to be the most important values to our current culture. And money, sex, and power just a means to the end and the way by which they try to attain it. So, and I don't think I'm putting up a straw man here. I don't, I'm not, certainly not trying to. Uh, I think this is the way it really is. And I think you can see it by some of the common mantras in our culture. You do you. Live your best life. Live your truth. Be true to yourself. And I think each of these popular slogans contains this, this self-focus, this inward preoccupation. They show the heart of this cultural moment that is committed to the sovereign self. But here's the question I would ask. Is that really the good life? Does that philosophy really hold up over the long haul? Does it actually produce a desirable life? Does it produce a good society? Does it deliver on its promise? Does it make sense of the human experience? Does it prepare one for death? Jesus cautions us that it doesn't. Jesus taught that it is not in self-seeking, but paradoxically in self-giving, submitting ourselves to the author of life and to his teachings and his example of living, that that is how the best life is lived. And the word that I just used here, the S word, submit, really is profanity in our culture. That's how the world feels about it. Uh, nothing is more offensive or appalling. How would I suspend my own rights and pursuits and, and, and not let uh, my sovereign self rule? How could I let anybody have power or authority over me? And again, Jesus taught that the life of autonomy, the life lived in pursuit of this sovereign self, is actually seductive, but short-sighted. And that if one obtains everything they want in their living years, they are still not prepared for death. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard has famously said that life is understood looking backwards, but it must be lived forward. And in the same manner, Jesus takes us up to the grave's edge, so to speak. And he would have us tow the sod-lined rim of the grave and peer in and ask ourselves some questions. What about the soul? What about life after death? And so we can see the failure of these popular mantras of our day. They concern themselves only with the temporal and they conveniently neglect the eternal. 
They ignore the reality of the soul or the fact that the soul conceives of eternity and it wonders about life after death. And so Jesus actually teaches that there is something worse than death. There is a life poorly lived. A life lived merely in the pursuit of satisfying one's appetites, amassing wealth and possessions, obtaining all that one desires, experiencing every imaginable pleasure would only serve to coddle and distract us away from the coming reality of death. Or to say it in a very short phrase, one of the great temptations of man is the success would put your own soul in danger of. A soul that is not ready for death has merely squandered life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so there is another paradox here as well. Surprisingly, when we submit our lives to Jesus through repentance and through faith, we actually turn out to find the life that is truly life. As we become his disciples, as we learn to live the life that Jesus lived, as we do this, we find that Jesus actually gives us our lives back. Lives that were once marred because of sin become reordered because of his righteousness given to us. Jesus taught in the Gospel of John that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it to the full. The other mantras and philosophies and cultural values pose to give us something, but in actuality they turn out to rob us of the good life in the here and now, and then more costly, they rob us of eternity to come. Uh, there is a 17th century fellow by the name of Blaise Pascal, uh, who is a, uh, get this, French mathematician, philosopher, physicist, and theologian. That's a lot to put on a business card, right? And he came up with something that is commonly referred to as Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager basically says that a person is reasonable and logical to live as though there is a God, to place their faith in this God, and to practice a life in obedience and submission to him. For that person, if they're wrong, all they lose are maybe a few creature comforts in life. But the person, <coughs> the person who uh, instead denies that there is God, lives for all these pleasures, if that person is wrong, then they have surrendered eternity. And so to kind of rephrase Pascal's wager here, you could say this, yeah, even Vegas would say that the betting odds are for faith in Christ. That's where the smart money is. Maybe Augustine's quote is better, you knew it was coming, it was only a matter of time before I got to St. Augustine. God, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I don't want to like falsely represent the Christian faith and just simply say, well, Christians don't have problems. You know, now that we have Jesus, everything just lays down and goes the way we want. It's all easy. It's all fun and games. Or that faith only makes life easier. Nothing could be further from the truth. But I love sort of the, what the fourth century saint, St. Augustine, his phrase, faith. Thank you. I caught it. That was impressive, yeah? 
Faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. As with marriage, when we enter a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are entering a relationship with one whom we know, but whom we will be growing to know our whole lives. We will be going through circumstances that are unknown, unpredicted. And we do this in a measure, with a measure of faith. Christianity begins by faith. It continues by faith. And over the long haul, it is faith seeking understanding. On the surface, the Christian faith and the teachings of Jesus and a life following his pattern of life, uh, they just appear to be sort of a steady assault against our own sovereignty, our own autonomy. But in dying to ourselves, we find life that is truly life. Jesus is the author of life. He is the one who set aside his uh, divine prerogatives, the independent use of his divine prerogatives to come to earth to live the perfect life. Jesus also surrendered his life so that we might have new life. He is the one who shows us how life is to truly be lived. It is in submission and discipleship to him. In my message today, I have referred to some contemporary cultural slogans, referred to philosophy, referred to the teachings of Jesus, Blaise Pascal, St. Augustine, Soren Kierkegaard, and Charlie Brown and Lucy. But sometimes we need more than words. Sometimes we need a picture. I've got some friends who are going to help me out with an uh, object lesson this morning. It wouldn't be a good outdoor service without an object lesson. And so I have Jennifer and Jeannie bringing up this uh, kite here. If you'll look off to my, my left, your right. And I want you to imagine, if you will, the internal musings that a kite has about itself. A kite thinks... I want to fly, baby. I want to soar. I've got these colors. I've got these wings. I'm ready to rise up on the wind. I want to be free. I'm ready for liftoff. But imagine the kite's disappointment with this nagging bit about a string. This string is limiting, confining, restricting. The kite wants to be free. It wants to be unfettered. But what would happen if we cut the string and threw the kite up in the air? Even if we waited for a great gust of wind. It might be airborne for a few seconds. Maybe even a really big wind would blow it 20 or 30 yards. But it would eventually come down. It would tumble to the ground and live its life tumbling and tumbling, getting in wreck after wreck until it was destroyed. As we all learned as kids, it's the grounding influence of the string that allows the kite to rise up on the winds and to soar and to function how it was made to be. And so it is with Jesus when our life is anchored in him and when we're tethered to him growing in discipleship, then we find a good life. We find a full life. We find a true life. And by his grace, we find eternal life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come that you may have life and have it to the full. If you're here this morning, thank you, ladies. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, 
then I would want to give you an opportunity to do that very hard work of submitting to him. And, and basically two steps, one step, repenting of your sin, and secondly, receiving Christ as your Savior. Repentance and faith. This is how the spiritual life begins with Jesus. So I'm going to close by leading us in a prayer. And if that expresses the desire of your heart that you would become a child of God and be saved from your sin through faith in Christ, then I would ask you just where you are to pray it quietly back to the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you left the comforts of heaven. You took on human flesh. Thank you that you lived a perfect life in my place. Thank you that you went to the cross and died in my place. Thank you that you are willing to take away my sin and you are willing to give to me your righteousness. Thank you for reconciling me with Almighty God and for making me your child. I love you and I want to learn to walk with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.